You're listening to Inside Law, a podcast produced by Polsonelli, a national full-service law firm stretching from coast to coast. Hello. Welcome to Polsonelli's second ever traditional labor podcast brought to you by Polsonelli's Management Labor Relations Attorneys, where we talk about all things unions, what's happening at the NLRB, current events and issues facing our clients, both unionized and non-union I'm Rob Enton, shareholder in the Chicago office. With me again today is Mark Nelson, my former Chicago colleague, now in our Denver office. Uh, please subscribe. Let us know how we did at our website. Absolutely share this podcast with your human resources, in-house counsel, and labor relations specialists. All of our future and current podcasts and webinars uh, can be found on our website. Tell us what you want to hear. Tell us what topic that you want us to talk about, obviously. Uh, If you haven't heard, uh, there's some things going on in the union world, um, and we want to know what you'd like us to go ahead and talk about. Mark, I hope all's well. Uh, I believe that last year when we did this podcast, I made fun of your baseball team, the Chicago Cubs, for trading away all its superstars. A year later, uh, my baseball team, the Chicago White Sox, is garbage. So um, let me know what you want to talk about as long as it's not sports related, because <laughs> I don't think we really have uh, much to really talk about. Absolutely true, Rob. Um, the only good news is compared to last year, we have far fewer players that we're going to lose because of the <laughs> relative uh, abilities of the team members. Oh, yeah, you're probably used to it at this time, uh, <laughs> at this point. Um, I guess we could talk college football. It's about a year away, actually tying in um, some interesting things going on at Penn State and potential unionization of the football players there. So I think uh, on a Saturday afternoon in the fall, um, the chant we are uh, may have a different response than just Penn State. Uh, <laughs> not sure the union organizers out there have thought about that. Um, could be clever. Um, Mark, let's talk a little bit about last year. Um, When we did this podcast, we were talking about the new general counsel of the NLRB, Jennifer Abruzzo. Um, You know, she had just been appointed. I think the purpose of the podcast was to discuss what we thought about her and what we thought about her agenda. Um, As I think our listeners are aware, uh, you know her professionally. I've heard her speak at seminars. We both find her and agree that she's intelligent, articulate, thoughtful. You know, she's a former deputy general counsel at the labor board, so she clearly is qualified. Um, That notwithstanding, um, I don't think it's an unfair statement to say that uh, she may not be a friend of our clients. Uh, And as you were recently quoted in a Law 360 article, uh, she hit the proverbial ground running and she's still sprinting. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what you mean and, and give us a brief recap of her first year as the general counsel. Well, Rob, um, Jennifer has done in her first year exactly what she described she would do in her confirmation hearings. Um, she has a perspective that is <clears throat> pro-employee and pro-unions, and she she believes deeply in, in those uh, audiences, if you will. And as you and I were talking before, um, there is a, a belief that she has uh, that the National Labor Relations Act is there to enhance and advance employees' rights and opportunities to join unions, engage in concerted activity, 
for their uh, their mutual benefit. And when you look at some of the uh, positions she's taken and uh, memorandums she's issued, she has um, a number of weapons or at least ideas and positions that she's going to ask the labor board to uh, to opine on uh, regarding those those very issues. One example is um, the right that employers have uh, and guaranteed under the National Labor Relations Act um, to talk with employees uh, with respect to labor relations, unions, and other matters like that. Um, she recently issued a, a memorandum where she's going to take the position and ask the labor board to take the position that certain types of captive audience meetings, meetings where employees are required to attend, uh, they're paid for that time, uh, where the employer talks with them about unions, union organizing, the good, the bad, the potential consequences, uh, that those would no longer be permitted uh, under a, a couple different circumstances. So that's a, a major change from the way the law has been interpreted in my you know, entire career, and that would change things significantly. And that's just one example. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up because it's actually one of the things that I wanted to uh, I wanted us to discuss for the listeners because when I have worked with employers, um, typically after a petition has been filed, um, I have found that the most effective tool uh, to put on an education campaign. Uh, about why unionization may not be in the employee's best interest are those captive audience meetings. Um, you know, it's whereas, you know, we can put together, you know, the greatest pamphlet or handbill to pass off to our employees. I mean, A, you know that the employees are going to go ahead and hand those to the unions that are seeking to organize them. But I think there's just a real difference about getting them in a room with a manager or supervisor, um, hopefully someone that they trust and respect, and having those guys um, in a meeting, whether it's before work, during work, during shift, during a lunch break, talk with all the employees that are on staff and explain to them why they think that their job is better or their work lives would be better by remaining union free. And if I understand where she's going with these captive audience meetings, number one, she would find it to be an unfair labor practice to make those mandatory. So already right now, um, you know, whereas employees as part of their job have to go ahead and attend these meetings, she would say that if you don't make them voluntary, then we're going to go ahead and find and we're going to go ahead and pursue an unfair labor practice charge against you. But I think it's really taking away a tool um, in an employer's toolbox to go ahead and have that effective communication and lawful employer speech uh, pursuant to 8D of the Act. I, I agree with you completely. Those meetings are, you know, are, are very, very important when you have, let's say, the owner or one of the chief leaders of the organization or per, that particular work site, and you have a group of employees together and you can have a dialogue where employees can ask questions, management can respond with, you know, within the, the rules and the limitations on management's ability to say things because of the restrictions of the act. But there's a dialogue that goes on there and a sharing of information that you're right. Number one, it wouldn't occur if pamphlets are being 
handed out or pieces of paper are being handed out to employees. It's that uh, conversation uh, where the groups of employees have the opportunity to talk amongst themselves and and you get a a group uh, interaction, which hopefully, given the culture of the organization, that would be positive. They would, you know, the employees would say, hey, you know, thank you for the information. Um, And now we have more information on the realities or the potential realities of having a union represent us in this workplace. Right. And and again, we're not neither condoning, promoting, recommending that the employer go ahead and, you know, um, engage in unlawful, coercive, you know, interfere with Section 7 rights. Uh, You know, there obviously you can't have any threats, um, no promise of benefits, going back to the whole tips don't spit that, that we talk to our clients about, but just giving them a different point of view um, about and in talking to them about ideas and concepts that you know that the union isn't sharing with them, I think is really important so that when they go into the voting booth or these days when they're filling out that mail ballot and sending it back in, that you know they're able to go ahead and vote their conscious having you know both sides um, and information, which really is all that the employer can expect and the employer should expect at that point. Now, I, I say all this, um, and this may be entirely irrelevant because one of the um, I want to say the mission, but one of the things that we have heard that the general counsel of Bruzo is considering doing is reviving um, a case that, I mean, essentially has been dormant um, for half a century, if not more, and that's Joyce Silk. Um, you know, Joyce Silk is a case um, in which the I think gives the board the authority and the power to go ahead and issue a bargaining order um, when employers have demonstrated that they have majority support uh, for a labor union. Um, It's probably a poor job of explaining that, Mark. Why don't you go ahead and describe Joyce Silk and and why, um, you know, if it is something that is revived, um, you know, as we talked about during our pre-session, um, it doesn't necessarily put the employer behind the eight ball. It's pretty much game over at that point. Rob, you're right. Um, but right now, um, let's assume that there's a situation where an employer agrees to meet with the union. Um, the union says, hey, we, you know, we have cards signed by a lot of your employees why don't we um, let's let's just talk and maybe we can come to a mutual understanding and uh, we don't have to go through this election process because you're going to lose anyway. You'll alienate employees. Um, why don't we just sit down and reach uh, reach an agreement or talk about reaching an agreement? And the union says we've got cards signed by 75 percent of the of your employees that we want to represent. Um, and we'll show them to you and we show them to you and. Uh, you satisfy yourself that their legitimate cards are signed by a majority of your employees, and you'll just agree to recognize us as the union and we'll negotiate a, a favorable contract for you. Well, somewhat favorable anyway. And the employer can say, no, they may be a majority, but we have a, a good faith doubt as to the legitimacy of those cards and a variety of our other arguments that can be made. And then the union. It is forced, if it wishes, to pursue representation of that workforce 
they've to file a, little, uh, a petition for an election with the NLRB and the NLRB will conduct an election. Right. And that's how it is now. Exactly. Yep. And the point you made, and it's it's a, a really disturbing one from the perspective of someone who advises uh, employers in a variety of industries and across the country, that if that same dynamic were to occur uh, and, the, and the cards were presented to the employer uh, and the cards were legitimate, the union would become the representative of the employees in that bargaining unit without a secret ballot election ever being held. Uh, and you know, cards, we, we could talk for hours about why employees sign cards. And many times it's not because they want the union to represent them. Many times it's because they want the union supporters to quit harassing them at work or at home or out and about to sign the card. Or they have been told that the card is merely a means to get uh, to get more information about the election process and that. And uh, most of that ends up, at least in my experience, not being exactly uh, the truth involved. So it uh, it would change things completely. And you're 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 right, Rob. That uh, with if Joyce Silk were to become law, and employers could would not would lose the right potentially to have a secret ballot election. Uh, union win rates, which are what are they now, Rob? In elections, 70, 70s, plus, yeah, seventy percent or yep. more, I think at this point. Yeah. Well, they wouldn't be elections, but the number of uh, situations where employers are uh, have to recognize and bargain with unions would would in, increase, even probably eighty percent, maybe higher than that. So it it would change things significantly. Yeah, well, it would be it would be akin to what we have here in Illinois with our public uh, public employers, which is just card check recognition. Um, you know, and and look, you know, from my experience in working in a union and also now representing management, you know, one of the things that I know employees are told during campaigns that is that just because you went ahead and signed a card. You know, that doesn't mean it's not a legally binding document. You don't have to go ahead and vote for the union um, in an election. Um, <laughs> reviving Joy Silk essentially eliminates that. If you sign a card, it essentially is your vote for a union during an election, such that, you know, captive audience meetings don't even matter anymore, uh, whether they're mandatory or they have to be voluntary, because if a union organizes um, its workforce and is able to go ahead and demonstrate that the majority of employees have signed authorization cards. As I said earlier, it's it's game over. You, you as an employer have no right. You have no ability to put on an educational campaign uh, or a pro-union, or I'm sorry, a pro-employer campaign. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it kind of gets me to like kind of our last area of conversation I want to talk to you about. And I actually think that we're, we're probably going to do another another podcast on this because I've been receiving a lot of inquiries from clients about some of these more high profile organizing campaigns that, you know, I don't think that they really existed the last time that you and I were together doing this podcast. Um you know, when, when you talk about Amazon and Apple and especially Starbucks, um, and with the latter having, you know, hundreds of unionized bargaining units in this really short, compact amount of time. Now, 
I don't know if that, you know, just because we've organized or unions have organized these industries, whether it's really changed kind of their percentage of the privatized workforce. I still think that that number is in the six or low seven percent. Um, but with that being said, uh, you know, unlike some of the other companies that, you know, may come to us, we're talking about major, major players here in this country, some of the largest organizations and companies, you know, that, that we have. Let me ask you this. How much of how much of these organize the organizing of these units? How responsible do you think that, you know, General Counsel Abruzzo is for this? Um, or do you think that, you know, the uptick in organizing of these facilities is more pandemic or inflation related? Or is there another reason that's out there, which has led to these kind of high profile organizing campaigns? I think you've identified uh, several different motivational aspects of uh, the dynamics that are occurring, probably in each of those three organizing campaigns. But to th- I don't believe that uh, the general counsel's year in office has had a significant impact on this organizing activity at all. I think these, these campaigns have been in the works uh, from a strategic standpoint by the unions for probably 18 months to 24 months before the proverbial boots hit the ground and they began actively engaging with employees to get cards signed and have elections. And the dynamics of each of those organizing campaigns are unique. There are some similarities. And I think when we get together again, we will talk through those. Um, And there are important lessons to be learned by employers who have not yet been unionized or not yet faced an organizing campaign. Uh, Lessons to be learned from each of those campaigns so uh, they can put themselves in a better position to avoid finding themselves a subject of organizing campaigns like that. I think it's a fascinating study that you have as you identified three major employers uh, in the United States with massive broad-based organizing campaigns at the same time. I find that to be a remarkable coincidence. I I can't think of a Probably put it this way, neither of us are old enough to kind of remember the last time that three of these major players, you know, who were traditionally non-union were all organized within the last year. Um, all right. So let, let's let's last series of questions or some quick hitters for you. Um, we're going to ask you to put on your Carmack hat for some of our younger listeners. You can go ahead and Google it so you know what we're talking about. Um we just finished year one of GC Abruzzo's tenure as the general counsel. What are we going to be talking about next year at this time uh, upon her completion of the second year? I think many of us on the, on the employer side uh, will be surprised at how effective general counsel Abruzzo has been in advancing the initiatives that are the high, high priorities to her, um, which is not a good thing for our employer clients, to be sure. 
I'm uh, I'm going to go with three. I'm going to say some kind of revision to the election rules. She's already kind of telegraphed that that's uh, that's an area that she wants to see revised, especially in light of some of the uh, decisions made by um, her predecessor and the Trump board. Uh, I think that we'll get some. Um, I don't want to say finally, because I don't know if anything's ever final in labor law, <laughs> uh, but we'll, we'll get some new guidance as it pertains to joint employer. Um, and I also believe, I don't know if there's a case right now that's pending before the board, but um, in regarding company emails and the ability for employees to go ahead and use them for union purposes, I expect a reversal of Caesar's entertainment and a return to the purple communications doctrine. So now that we've said that on the podcast, uh, you and I will be back, um, you know, <laughs> much sooner than next year to see whether our prognostications are accurate. Uh, but look, on this uplifting note, um, let's put a capper on today's discussion. Mark, I think this was a was a really good insight. Um, we're going to come back. We're going to do this a little bit more frequently. Um, I think that the next topic we're going to elaborate, talk a little bit more about um, Amazon, Apple, Starbucks, um, and some of these more progressive left-leaning companies and why they have been ripe for union organizing and what that may mean for you and your workforce. Um, in the interim, um, go to our website. Tell us what you think. Um, if you liked it, let us know. If there are topics you want us to discuss, let us know. If you were bored, let us know and tell us what we can do to entertain you a little bit better next time. Uh, but until then, um, Rob Enton with Mark Nelson. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We want to remind listeners that the choice of a lawyer is an important decision and it should not be based solely on advertising. The information and discussions in this podcast do not constitute legal advice and listeners should consult legal counsel regarding their specific subject matter. Thank you for listening to Inside Law a podcast produced by Polsonelli.